Hey everybody, this is Kevin Couchman with the podcast Get This. It's the show about things people love, coming to you from the Corona Quarantine Bunker in upstate Manhattan, Washington Heights. The final month that I'll be recording this podcast from New York before the move to St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm really excited to do two episodes today. Just uh, knocked one out with the great Sean Phillips. And now I have two of my favorite people here. Michael Backinson, actor, Brad Kelly, frequent guest of the show, friend, uh, author. We're here to talk about something that I know we all love, uh, the works of Shakespeare, but particularly through uh, Harold Bloom, whom uh, Michael Bakkinson studied under. And this is Sunday, April 5th, in the foul, 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 thrice foul year of our Lord, 2020. <laughs> we're going to try to forget that we're not in the middle of a global pandemic and talk about <laughs> <laughs> a truly great scholar. And uh, I had to put this episode together because uh, uh, Michael mentioned recently after we had recorded uh, an episode not that many weeks ago that he had had the good fortune to study under Harold Bloom at Yale uh, for a couple of semesters. And I thought that's going to be something I would definitely want to talk about uh, for an hour on this show. So, Michael, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Good to meet uh, Brad. Yeah, good to meet you, Michael. And we're, we're triangulating here. So, Backinson is a, is up the hill here in the Heights, correct? Well, actually, right now I am upstate. Oh, you went upstate. I a friend has a cabin up in the woods in the Catskills, and uh, we got permission to come up. So we, my wife, oh, and daughter, and I got here last night. Oh, good for you guys. That's great. Yeah. 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 So we're social distancing by like many many miles rather than six feet now so that's the move yeah. and of course brad is in detroit i'm in detroit detroit ish so, yeah yep. wow. awesome my uh, wife grew up uh or was born grew up for first seven years south of detroit taylor. oh okay yeah yeah i know taylor yeah down river yep yeah <laughs> well we're gonna have a lot to talk about here on this episode i'm glad glad you guys got to to meet each other uh yeah. this is the kind of thing that in better times we'd be doing this up at kismet at the bar but for, for now yeah. we're we're gonna be doing it by skype uh michael so you mentioned this and i guess maybe the place to start is a primer on who bloom was i i know him as the person who uh provocatively and probably uh not inaccurately claimed that Shakespeare invented humanity. Uh, but of course, you had the fortune to study with him. So I, I just really want to hear what that was like. Yeah, I mean, he he was a really interesting guy in terms of his, <laughs> his worldview. I mean, he viewed everything through literature. Um, it was almost a religion for him. In fact, the book that I'm rereading right now, because I knew I was going to be doing this podcast, is called Omens of the Millennium. And, mm. and then the subtitle is The Gnosis of Angels, Dreams, and Resurrection. And so he also called it sort of a, a Gnostic. He considered himself a Gnostic. And part of his worship, in a way, was that Shakespeare was the nexus through which all literature funneled in and everything after which came out of. Um, and that in inventing humanity, he what he really did was he first showed people listening to themselves, being surprised by themselves, being surprised by facets of their own personality, and that that hadn't been there before. So you begin to see it in like the tragedies of Richard III and certainly sort of at its um, height with, with Hamlet. Yes, this idea, and I was reading the opening chapters of his great book on Shakespeare, which I think is just called Shakespeare, uh, mm -hmm. which is a seminal. The Invention of the Human. Yeah, The Invention of the Human. And that argument that in Shakespeare, these characters have that richness and that reality because of those sort of self-aware asides. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a turn in in mm -hmm. literature and in thinking about what it means to be human. Yeah, it's sort of like suddenly there was interiority, that mm -hmm. somebody could overhear their own thoughts and that that kind of arguing with oneself hadn't ever been depicted before. I'm still learning how to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting, too, because, of course, this is all highly political. Uh, I'm reading the Wikipedia article, and it says that Bloom was a defender of the, uh, the traditional Western canon at a time when literary departments were focusing on what he derided as the school of resentment, multi multiculturalists, yeah. feminists, Marxists, neoconservatives, and others. Uh, and that's quite provocative, of course, because 
I mean, we're talking about the 80s and the 90s, aren't we? And yeah, uh, I mean, this is only ascended. That school of resentment has completely taken over. Uh, and yet he he stands and his work stood um, apart from that. Yeah, he was going to he was going to fight that to, to his death. And it, I don't think he was necessarily. Well, I shouldn't speak for him. I think that he drew a very, very thick line, very thick, deep line in the sand uh, in terms of protecting the individual and the um, respecting the self um, and that uh, he didn't want to see human beings reduced to categories, to groups, to social movements. And so that's what he set himself against rather than just sort of being, you know, anti-Marxist or anti-feminist or something like that. He, he was more pro um individual or self, you know, the, the, the fullest extent of humanity and regarded characters themselves, Shakespearean characters as people that he, you know, could converse with, that these were yeah. real living, breathing, um, entities rather than, rather than just sort of social constructs that, you know, had been written by social forces. Yeah. I, 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 in my preparation for this, I, uh, I had quite a busy week, and so I, I was really just watching talks of his or listening to talks of his as I went about my day. And, and it it was pretty interesting to hear him talk about the character of Hamlet, not only treating it as, Hamlet as though he were a real per, living person, but also sort of talking about the fact that Hamlet had, I wish I could remember his exact terms, as much self-consciousness or insight into himself as any other real human being. That he, right. In some ways, Hamlet Hamlet was not the richest character he'd encountered in literature, but might've been like the richest person that he knew, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a great quote in this book where he says that, um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare with his, uh, with his characters, um, essentially that they, they write themselves, um, that they kind of surprise themselves. They surprise, um, probably surprise Shakespeare himself. Um, and that, uh, I guess, personality wise, you know, they're, they're in, they're enduring. And, and yeah, exactly what you said that Hamlet is, is as complex and real as any person you, you'll ever meet in your real life. Um, but also interestingly, he's saying that you don't find Shakespeare himself in the works he writes. You find the characters mm -hmm. that he creates, but there's no character that's a surrogate for the author there. There's nobody that's speaking as a mouthpiece for him anywhere. Uh, yes. in anything that he's written. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's really interesting. I mean, we don't know that much relatively speaking for, for how present Shakespearean work is in culture. We don't, there's very little of William Shakespeare himself in our culture as a character. Unlike say like a Mark Twain who exists as his sure. own character or something like that. And so that's probably true that he doesn't really show up in his work, but I don't even know if we would find him if we came across him. You know, it's, it's yeah. there's so little known about him in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, but that is that does seem to be true. He does seem to have these fully realized people who, um, you know, a, as a writer, a bit of a writer myself, I'm sort of uh, intimidated by, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> the, his ability to conjure these people and, and how fully realized they can be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was an enigma. And one thing that, that Bloom brought up a lot was that, um, well, one of the things that he really fought against was this these theories of Shakespeare's being other anything other than, you know, a, a working class person who had had a basic education, that, that sort of classist, elitist take that, it, oh, it couldn't possibly be a commoner who had written these things, just incensed him. Right. Because... Uh, what the little that we do know of Shakespeare comes from the legal record and how how much he fought to have uh, to be compensated and to fight against copyright infringement, essentially, that people mm. weren't doing knockoffs of his shows. And he was fighting constantly to to get paid and to shut down other plays that were trying to to rip him off. <laughs> <laughs> I like I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Huh. And he also made the point, I don't, I don't know where he had this information, but that he was maybe one of the most successful financially uh, writers up to that point and almost, almost in history that he really, he was able to accumulate wealth through this by, you know, the protection of his intellectual property and just the success of his plays. Well, and he was so prolific. I mean, it's a play yeah. a year, every year or two, correct? Yes. Yeah, every year, prolific. And of course he's an actor as well. So he's, he's writing to perform and. Yeah. Hmm. writer um he also probably played uh was probably a musician as well um 
because at that time you had to be multifaceted. You had these smaller companies where people were doubling mm. in different roles and they were also doing the sound effects and the, and the music for it. So he probably was an all around uh, performer. Wow. Mm. That just struck me. What uh, a trip it would be if we could just for one day teleport back with our, with our good American teeth uh, <laughs> <laughs> into what the 17th century. Is that right? Uh, it would just be incredible. Yeah. Late 16th, early 17th. Yeah. 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 So one thing I don't know about, about all of that was Shakespeare, what we would call a producer now as well. Was he producing these? Yeah. I mean, he, he had started out most likely he had traveled around, um, and apprenticed himself as a young man, uh, and moved from Stratford with a theater company that would have traveled around from town to town and then settled down in London. <laughs> So as he began to move from performing into creating his own pieces, he then had his own theater company. Um, okay. And I forget what the first one was called, but at a certain point, you know, he he uh, he got patronage with the Queen at a at a point, and then uh, uh, had first a uh, he first had a theater that was on one side of the Thames that was more in in central London, and then it, he moved south of the Thames into an area that was full of um, bear baiting. Um, dog fights, nice. <laughs> uh, you know, taverns, whorehouses, yeah, whatnot. Nice. And then the Globe Theater opened there. And that wow. was his his theater. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and when, and when you were studying with Bloom, what year was that, Michael? When was that? That was uh, 94, 95. Was it a dog fight to get into those classes? Were you aware at the time how uh, serious it was? It was. Um and yet he he was an interesting guy. He said he did not want to have anyone that wanted to take the class not be allowed to take it. So it was packed to the gills. Yeah. Some people were some people were auditing it. Some people were just showing up. You know, they had no official reason to be there. Oh, I would show up if I if I were going to Yale and couldn't get in. I would have probably yeah. shown up for sure. I, yeah. I mean, there were scholars that were in their fifties. I remember this woman that was like probably in her late fifties, early sixties that would just kind of hang out. Wow. Um, throughout the semesters. That's a that's a really good note because I feel like in, uh, at a first blush, it's really easy to paint Harold Bloom as this sort of uh, curmudgeonly, and, and from what we've talked about, about his sort of reject, rejection of the school of resentment, it's really easy mm -hmm. to sort of paint him into some hardliner, slightly bigoted jerk kind of category. <laughs> right? So to get a, like an egalitarian story out of about him, it really gladdens my heart because from listening to him talk, I kind of get that vibe that he is that way anyway. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was a real humanitarian too, you know, and, right. and he, he was for how hard he was and difficult and how much he, he picked fights with, um, his intellectual rivals. He was a sweet man. I found him to be, to be sweet. Um, yeah, it was interesting. The other thing he said was, uh, my darlings, I will never give you a test. I would never do that to another human being. <laughs> so, <laughs> there were no exams. There were no quizzes. There was one assignment, and that was just like, write me a paper. So at the right. end of the semester, after all that uh, sitting in class in a seminar around a yeah. big, huge table with like 30, 40 people packed in the room, you just had to figure out what what is Harold Bloom going to want to read? Right. <laughs> there were zero guidelines. Right. That's that's kind of I mean, at that point, the, the, what you've gone through academically to get to that point to be in that class, that's kind of how it should be. Right. I mean, what a, what's a test? I mean, we're not yeah. in middle school here. So, exactly. yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That 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 that's the route that he chose to take, take it. By the way, that was a great Harold Bloom impression. And I've been dying to know after listening to these kind of revisiting these talks, a lot of them I'd already listened to years back. What was that accent of his? Like, linguistically, where did he come from? <laughs> I think it was uh, Harold Bloom, the invention of Harold Bloom. Okay, um, it must be. Yeah, he was from a, a conservative Jewish family, kind of lower working class Brooklyn, okay. and was just a, a genius, kind of an yeah. autodidact, got yeah. himself into, into Cornell, um, I think had straight A's there. He was famous, I think it's at Cornell, for like reciting huge chunks of classical text right right you know he could just he could recite anything backwards and forwards i think he, he did he would do kind of oscar wilde type stuff like that like reading texts backwards that yeah. he'd memorized 
That's why. And he now legend has it that when he was a young man and we don't have to stick to this because maybe it's it's the tall tales and maybe it's not as interesting as some other places. But legend has it. He was read He could read when he was young, something like a thousand pages an hour or something like this. Yeah, I don't but, know. You know, I, I've read stuff like that about Oscar Wilde, too, where okay. he he would hold up a book and just he could see both pages of the book at the same time. Yeah. And he would yeah. just flip, you know, he'd just be flipping like this and, right. and have full retention. Right. The, and it was like at a pace that would be like if you or I were looking for something, we'd highlight it just like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's so unbelievable. I mean, he didn't say that, I, but I've heard that in interviews yeah. or, or things about it. But he, he didn't right. brag about himself that much, but he didn't right. need to. I mean, he, he would sit in class as a 60 something year old man and just quote extensive passages. He would start reading from the book and then he would just his eyes would go up to the ceiling and he would just keep <laughs> reading even though he wasn't looking at the book so he clearly had yeah. the entire play well he was reaching some kind of religious ecstasy probably in, in yeah. what you're saying that literature is his religion um yeah. it's probably why he can be an old softy and a sweetheart but when it's time to sort of argue he's got to do it right because it's a religious yeah. the yeah. fights are worth it for him yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um, and what was the structure of those classes so you mentioned you took two semesters with him was it sort of the the intro and then the advanced or was it more just one year of sort of comprehensive study i mean intro and advanced is probably a silly way of saying it but yeah no he he worked his way uh through the the genres of the plays so it was the first was the uh the comedies and the romances and then the second semester was the histories and the tragedies um and he just kind of worked through it play by play. You know, each week would be a different play that he would be highlighting and we'd be talking about. And we'd, we'd just sit there and discuss. You know, he would talk and then people would try to get get up the nerve to, to put in their two cents. And then he would either shoot you down or give you the nod that he was agreeing with you or something. Uh-huh. Um, but that was it. It was just simply con- constant discussion for several hours straight. Uh, and I can't every, remember if it was once or twice a week, but yeah. And every and every week you're coming in having read the the text. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you get a comprehensive survey of of all of Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, I mean, you didn't read every single one of them, but we probably covered sixteen or twenty of them wow. yeah. over the course of the year. Hmm. Yeah, incredible. Was it a lot of actors? Was it more English types? Who who was in the class? It was a mix. There were a few actors. You know, Yale is a liberal arts thing, so so most people are doing a lot of different a lot of different things. Um, but most people, I think, almost everybody had to be an English major. Although some people maybe were able to take a survey, take it as a survey course. Um, and if, there were a few actors in it. Um, I think I'm maybe the only one that's still acting at this point. Um, <laughs> Something must but, have uh, stuck. I guess so. Now I ran into him. <laughs> Many years later, about five or six years ago at the Drama Bookshop, and he was doing a book signing there. And I thought for sure there would be no way he would know who I was. And I was like, hi, I'm Michael. I took you. He goes, I know who you are, my child. I was like, no, I was in your cell. It was like 1990. He goes, I remember you. Oh, man. That's darling. Wow. Do you remember what you uh, wrote your papers on? I do. Yeah, I remember them intimately because I think the first one I wrote was about 40 pages long. So I just let myself go. Um, I wrote it on uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And what I figured was I should write on whatever kind of had sparked interest in discussion in class. And he had talked about when Bottom wakes up from his dream. He says, I've had a dream that hath no bottom. And Mm -hmm. Bloom was talking about in philosophy or in religion, this idea that kind of you could be in one reality and then the bottom would fall out from that and you sort of fall into this other universe. And then underneath that was another one. And so I took that as kind of a central metaphor to look through all of Midsummer Night's Dream and then bring in all kinds of other crap from, um, I don't know, nuclear physics to (laughs) to, uh, Kierkegaard to whatnot. You know, Uh, he he liked kind of wide ranging discussions. So I just brought in a lot of different stuff to, to explore and to to build on that idea of the bottomless dream. Huh. Well, that's interesting because a guy who, I mean, my, that it, it's interesting that he would sort of accept the paper like that. I feel like it, it, it makes sense to me, but it doesn't seem like something I could have gotten away in writing in my <laughs> various English courses, you know, but would have liked to have, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Because he's, I mean, if you were going to sort of, rank 
if we were to sort of think about the bloom hierarchy of what is valuable in a piece of literature, right? Because he was very mm-hmm. he he did he wasn't shy about having an opinion about something as being good or bad, it seems right. to me. Right? right. Right. So I mean, I think maybe chief among them is just like aesthetic value, just sort of like what does the internal uh, sort of struggling for words here. What is the sort of beautiful aspect of this? Its impact on you as a reader, I guess. Sure, but, absolutely. But I mean, so what are other things that he valued about a piece of literature? Because he didn't give he didn't give a wit about politics, really. It didn't seem doesn't seem no, to me. not at all. Yeah, <laughs> I think kind of finding transcendent, messy truths that yeah made your mind explode um, yeah. was what he was after. Right. Right. Um, you know, poets, he loved Hart Crane. Mm-hmm. Um, he loved uh, Whitman. You know, he he has quotes in this book from like C.S. Lewis, who he hated. <laughs> he he yeah. quotes this enormous passage and he's like, this is basically the opposite of everything I believe. <laughs> it's this That's whole awesome. passage about self-abnegation and having to like lose mm-hmm. yourself. And, give, and he was just like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then uh, in the second semester, I wrote about uh, Antony and Cleopatra, focusing on the her speech where she says, I am fire and air, and sh- sort of this idea of moving into an apotheosis, a human kind of declaring themselves to be a god, because I figured that would kind of fire him up too, and I would be sure. <laughs> excited about that. Yeah. So I traced that kind of through the whole thing of this. Uh, huh. And it, 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 my senior paper actually kind of followed in on stuff like that. I did it with a different um, a different professor, but I got interested in these images of apocalypse. And so then I took that into uh, Macbeth and Tamburlaine the Great by uh, Marlowe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fascinating. And what a time to the 90s to have thoughts of apocalypse. Yeah. Perfect. The millennia, <laughs> the millennium's coming to an end. Just so, 24 years too early. Right. Yeah. And here we are now <laughs> under the reign of Corona. I wonder yeah. if, if Shakespeare wrote Corona as a character, what that would, what that <laughs> voice would sound like. Probably Macbeth. Probably getting into Macbeth ter- territory there. Yeah. What yeah. do you think, Backinson? Uh, well, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great exercise, imaginative exercise. Because what is, what is a virus anyway, but something that hijacks somebody else's system and mm-hmm. then just sort of like, um, you know, prof- just keeps keeps spewing out little versions of themselves to the expense of the, the host. Yeah. Um, Shades of the Tempest, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. But it's it's so simple and stupid. So, you know, I, I can imagine <laughs> it being like this, you know, really dumb character that somehow takes over the kingdom and then, you know. Yeah, I was sort of thinking that too. Yes, for <laughs> sort of mindless character that somehow can't be outsmarted, kind of. Right. Yeah, yeah almost an automaton. You know. Yeah. Some... Oh no! Yeah, I just realized Corona is a podcaster. <laughs> just no interest, but self-propagation. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, that is this is the Get This Podcast. I'm Kevin Couchman. GetThisPodcast.com, and. Uh, we are accepting donations now. I'm getting this in on every episode. I don't want to run ads. Uh, if you subscribe, and I think it starts at like $2.50, half a coffee uh, for the month, you can get your very own psychedelic portrait done from the great Peniel Collada. These oh, are featured. Good job. Yeah, we love Peniel. And uh, those are featured on uh, every episode. Uh, you can get them on, on the show notes at getthispodcast.com. And in this case, we asked Benil to do a portrait of the, the great uh, Professor Bloom. So you can see that uh, at the website. Uh, and then there's a button there to donate if you want to support independent media, uh, the the virus that is uh, this podcast. <laughs> I would welcome that. <laughs> uh, right. So it, isn't that interesting? We've immediately kind of arrived in, in pretty short order to this idea of um, kind of like the dialectic of ideas. One thing can trigger another thing. And there aren't very many authors who um, can sort of spark as many fragments of thought uh, off of a simple correlation, right? Like, what mm-hmm. would Shakespeare do with this virus? And you can kind of immediately go, hmm, that it's just interesting. It kind of it opens doors that, that might not otherwise open. Uh, because we all have our own relationship with the bard and with these these plays, mm-hmm. uh, no two people have the have the same Shakespeare. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking that maybe even Marlowe might have more, and he might be more fascinated with the Corona character because he liked, he sort of liked these mindless, like Tamberlane the Great was this, you know, zero introspection. He was like the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of tra- <laughs> tragic heroes, just going out there, winning, destroying, tearing people to pieces. And then there's, there's just no cosmic comeuppance at all. Yeah. At the end of it, he like, Gets his son to take over the throne, and he dies of a stomach ache. And basically, end of story. Sounds wow. positively presidential. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Should run for office. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, yeah, no, I think Shakespeare actually would would be horrified by this Corona character. So maybe like the main character would be somebody that's trying to vanquish him or something. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, and Corona really is a character, isn't it? We tend to think of yeah. everything in terms of these. These characters, what did Bloom say, I think, at the beginning of that Shakespeare book? He talks about, you know, most Christians would actually be surprised to discover that they they don't worship God, they worship characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's quite insightful. Uh, yeah. What is Christianity without the character of Jesus? It doesn't exist. Right. Uh, I have a question, uh, Michael. What, yeah. uh, what was his relationship to the Greeks? Uh, did he Did he have opinions on that? I mean, he must have. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. He didn't, that didn't come up a bunch. He was, it, I mean, I, I feel like in class, he was more likely to talk about Freud. He might uh, bring up Jung. He, uh, not much, though. He doesn't consider himself a Jungian, nor a Freudian, but he was sort of interested in stuff like that. So he was more interested in like contemporary psychology than bringing up stuff about the Greeks. He didn't bring them up that often. Yeah, no, he, that, yeah. If I could ask him anything, it would per, perhaps be that. How, you know, how do you how do you square all this stuff with? Uh, but of course, this was a very particular course, and I'm sure he's he probably wrote about it. Uh, I mean, he he was prolific. He wrote mm-hmm. many books. Uh, did he? So, was your text for the Shakespeare course? Was it the the Shakespeare book? Oh no, we didn't have a text. We just read Shakespeare. Just, <laughs> so I just had a copy Perfect. of the Riverside Shakespeare, and and uh, you know, he would suggest other other scholars, other literary scholars from over the years that he was interested in as mm-hmm. kind of supplementary material to read. But that was it. You were just reading the plays and reading them deeply. Um, it's interesting you bring up the the Greeks. I mean, I, I feel like he's much more interested in early Christianity, early uh, Judaism, uh, Hellenistic society um, mm-hmm. as it moves out into like Alexandria and, mm-hmm. and places like that. Rather, I, I just... I don't see a ton of references to, I guess, Plato or Aristotle or he wasn't, it wasn't a a primary focus for him. He was much more interested kind of in Christian and Jewish scholars. And even, I mean, in this book here, he's talking about Zoroastrianism and Sufism and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I'm actually kind of glad you brought that book up because I was going to ask you a little bit about Bloom's uh, Gnosticism. It's somewhat right up my alley. And it kind of makes sense to me uh, that one of the one of the greatest literary critics would also consider himself a Gnostic. I mean, it's a religion about interpretation fundamentally. So it's kind of fascinating that he sees that connection. And I appreciated in hearing him talk about these things, the sort of nods he would make to religious tradition in within the humanities world that kind of, and my experience is sort of pretended that stuff doesn't exist to a large extent. Yeah. So as another, I guess another way in which he was a contrarian, uh, (laughs) somewhat, Mm -hmm. um, another reason to, to kind of be an enthusiastic, uh, uh, Bloomian, I think, if, as if, if that's not already a term. Yeah, I don't know if it's a yeah. term. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. He he invaded my dream life. I remember after I graduated, I, I had a dream yeah. about him once. Sounds right. And he was like, he was right. I think he was riding a Sherman tank and we were like <laughs> heading over the mountains. I was like in this column of tanks with him. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, that couldn't yeah. mean anything at all. That's, yeah. Well, he, it actually came from a quote of his in class, he said that people that like God in Milton's Paradise Lost are the same kind of people that enjoy watching war movies where like a Sherman tank comes in and attacks infantry. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think somehow that it, that got into my imaginative center. And, um, but you're asking about the Gnosticism. That's why I wanted to reread this book. Because what brought it up was I actually miss, you were talking about Grant Morrison in your podcast that you were doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
which got me interested in him. And, I, and then he started referring to some text by Bloom. I mistakenly thought he was talking about Harold Bloom, but he was talking about Howard Bloom, who okay. is somebody else entirely. But there was but kind of an interesting, but a very different guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there is some crossover there to what Morrison was talking about and what you had been talking about. I think maybe you mentioned Gnosticism in the podcast or yeah. Morrison did in one of the interviews that I read with him. But um, yeah, Bloom. The, the birth of Bloom in terms of who he became as a literary scholar uh, traces back to like 1965, 1966, when he was in his mid-30s. He was an, an established literary critic. He had a tenured position at Yale. He was doing well for himself. But he suddenly, out of nowhere, fell into an exceedingly deep depression. Mm. So much so that he couldn't teach. He couldn't read. He didn't want to do anything. Like everything in life just huh. kind of like crashed down for him but yeah. and he went he he said on the advisings of uh, a mentor of his he went to london and then under somebody else's advice he started psychoanalysis mm. and he absolutely hated it and he was <laughs> he got so angry with, with his analyst <laughs> that that actually pitched him out of his depression oh and, wow <laughs> and he also had some sort of like a quasi religious experience at that time that uh, led to his um, conceiving the theory of the anxiety of influence uh, that out of that which sort of made him as a as a scholar and as a right, theorist right. which was the idea that every writer every person is they're in love with the the writing that that inspired them and fueled them and yet they it's this very equivocal thing because they're also an antagonist to them because how can they possibly be original with mm. and reject uh, who they've read. So it became everything after that became this whole uh, process of, of seeing how writers are embracing the their influences, but also fighting against their influences in order to mm. try to establish their own um, identity and their own originality. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That that's concept a powerful, is that's a powerful, powerful perspective. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a truism. As soon as you hear it, it feels like um, it's like uh it's almost not theoretical. It's like he discovered discovered something more so than came up with something. It's I could see that coming out of a religious, uh, some kind of religious experience. And sure. it also came out of the depth of his, I think, horror over who am I? What what mm -hmm. mark am I going to make in the world? Like I can't. I think he must have found him. He painted himself to a corner where he felt like everything he was doing was derivative. And then he right. realized that's what everyone does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just imposter syndrome, but just sure. on a, a Bloomian scale, kind of, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he um, he was in London when he was getting the the uh, analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he just mentions that as a a, a little aside in this in this book. Um, but sort of what what brought him to to Gnosticism. And he, he only talks about it obliquely, but you know, that's kind of this knowledge of God being inside of you or, you know, that they're, you're connecting to this, you are God in some sort of way. You can know uh, God but, directly without right. intermediation, without mediation. That's a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. And then also, uh, that the idea of God is some sort of benevolent creature that's, or benevolent, omni omniscient, omnipresent person that's kind of like, pushing all the little army soldiers around, you know, making sure that everything's fine, that that's just actually from his perspective, having lost grandparents and aunts and uncles to the Holocaust was just a, a sickening assertion that this <laughs> idea of a benevolent, right. omnipotent God couldn't be there. And yet he still had the religious impulse. And so this idea of, of, of God being both inside you, but also hopelessly remote, that this is just a demiurge, uh, creation a kind of a fallen the, the creation itself is the fall right. and the god the god that you know originated it is, is far far away right. <laughs> in the universe far, right. far away and there's some implications in some of that not in some of gnostic thought that like that creator may have created the world simply because it in the simplest terms wanted to see a story play out basically yeah. it's almost this idea of like narration is like a cosmological phenomena and so yeah. in that case god wouldn't have any interest in making sure good things happened he wants to see just like us when we see a movie we might want good things to happen in the end but we need some <laughs> chaos and some tension and some drama and somebody needs to die maybe or fall in love and then it not you know they would be possibly interested in the same kinds of things we are so 
Yeah. Anyway, sort of that's a, a sort of a pet trickster. interesting topic to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was he very open about the Gnosticism in class? Did it come up frequently? Yeah, he would mention it. Yeah, I mean, that's something he just sort of would talk about. I am, yes, as I am a Gnostic. And I thought he was saying agnostic at first because I had no idea. You know, I didn't know what the heck he was well, talking what, about. And this is why, <laughs> uh, as, as a lifelong public school schlub, this is why you go to Yale. <laughs> like this is exactly like I'm, I am so j- bitterly jealous. I'm uh, I'm joking, but but at the same time, like there's a bit of a shine that I'm getting off this because I mean, what a, what a joy and a privilege to to have that opportunity. Uh, needless it to was, say, and that was yeah, that was single handedly the best part of the whole experience that I had there. Um, and it was cool because if you're reading this and you're kind of digging his thoughts, and you're reading the plays and and you're thinking you know you're thinking in your head as he's speaking it almost sometimes felt as if he was completing the sentences in my head of what i was like oh, i want to say this and then like that's what would come out of his mouth and i'm like my god we're we're kind of sharing a consciousness here wow um, and it, that's a long way to new haven from oregon too mm-hmm. yeah what was that like <laughs> well i was i was definitely um a fish out of water my first semester there um and then moving into my second, it took me a while to get my feet because, like you said, public school schlub. I mean, I, I went to, you know, I went to public school as well um, and did OK there. But I was kind of more of a, a workaholic, um, just doing everything to fill my resume and blah, 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 blah. But when I got there, there were people that had gone to Phillips Andover or right. whatever, you know, the yeah. most elite schools who were already writing college level essays, probably as a sophomore in high school. Right. Um, so I had a lot of catching up to do um, over the first couple of semesters. But but then I kind of found my feet and found my community there. And, and, and the theater world is where I felt the most um, comfortable. Wild. Yeah. Hmm. Did you yeah, do a lot were, of the- I, Yeah. There were maybe like three people there from Oregon and, and not that many people from the West Coast in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. But it was different. You know, it was different. It, it had, you know, been an all boys school like in the you know in the late 60s it didn't switch over from there and they also the um the influence of alumni getting in and and uh, it being kind of an old boys club had eroded to a, a pretty great extent by the time i was there but there were still those vestiges you know like the secret societies and the <laughs> kids that were ultra wealthy and ultra elite and privileged and then there were you know a lot of us that had come from public schools and tested well or <laughs> yeah right write good essays for them right what was what was bloom's sort of i mean out i imagine obviously the the kids who are studying literature or studying theater or very closely related concepts were in the cult of bloom to some extent but like what about what was his status sort of on the university at large He, he had kind of a legendary status yeah yeah, and it was also people were frightened to take the class because of that one essay. He didn't mess around. You yeah. could get an A on it or you could get an F. He'd just be like, you know what? I disagree with everything that you said. And I think that you argued it poorly. Wow. A friend, and a friend getting an F at class, Yale, too. Like, you're ouch. Ouch. He's never had an F. First right. of all, he's probably never gotten uh, yeah. that sort of right. grade before. Yeah. Huh. I have a friend of mine who shall remain nameless now a roommate of mine. <laughs> I think he, he, he tried to knock out the essay like the night before. Oh, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what Bloom wrote on the paper, but, but he showed it to me and it was, a, he'd gotten a D or a D minus. Oof. And it said like, poor, poorly written, poorly argued, <laughs> poorly, <laughs> poor word choice. So it was just, I mean, he just yeah. eviscerated. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was not a class to be taken lightly, and he and he intimidated people, and he was a legend. But for the people that loved him, it was you know it was something something not to be missed. Yeah, well, I think there's some value in that throwback kind of attitude. I mean, I didn't go to university sixty years ago or whatever, but I have to imagine it was a little more um, high stakes, a little more serious, a little less coddled a little less interested in sort of your feelings and (laughs) yeah and i have to imagine that harold bloom was much more of that school than um than the the current well the school of resentment Uh, yeah so exactly it's probably good i mean that's 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 like a real education right i mean um i wouldn't want to have to do it over but (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think the main criticism that people had uh, with him was was people that really deeply disagreed with him, um, finding it difficult for him to engage with them or, you know, you don't want to get a bad grade on a paper because, like, you just fundamentally disagree with your professor philosophically. Sure. And sure. there were people like that out there. And I think that they did not do well in the course. Yeah. So yeah. I, I happened to really get fired up by what he talked about and was interested in writing something that he would find fascinating. So I did well in it. But I, I don't know if I had been stubborn or, you know, didn't agree with him that, that I think I, w I would have found it to be really frustrating. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. Huh? Yeah. Larger <laughs> than life character. Uh, for sure. You know, the saying that, uh, stories happen to people who can tell them. Mm -hmm. Right. I think I've never heard that. Never like heard that. that. I, I, I yeah. I'm sure that's, I'm poaching it from some, someone, but yeah, stories happen to, yeah. Good stories happen to people who can tell them. Uh, and this guy sounds like a storyteller. Uh, oh yeah, in a in a huge way, and someone who can appreciate Shakespeare and also completely prostrate himself in front of it, uh, and what it is is it's it's a contradiction, isn't it? Yeah, well, he had this he had a very vivid image of who he thought Shakespeare was, um, which I think I've I've come to embrace a little bit, and I forget the name. There was a really great Shakespeare book that was written about ten or twelve years ago by a Harvard professor. I'm, I want to say his name is like Stephen Greenblatt or something. Anyway, I'm probably totally butch butchering that. But he did a great kind of attempt at a biography of, of Shakespeare that I really liked. And it's squared in many ways with what Bloom um, taught. Um, his humble origins, what he would have learned in school of the Latin and Greek texts that he would have learned that were the basis for all of his plays. That's another thing that's interesting about Shakespeare was not a single original storyline in any of those plays. It's all, you know, he, he borrowed all of it. Yeah, it's adaptation. And, and so his invention is the characters, the language, the imagery, the all of that stuff. Um, but story, you know, he, he needed a good story, but he didn't feel any need to invent any of these stories. Yeah. There's something in that, for sure, as a writer. It takes some of the weight off. You're adapting yeah. something. Yeah. You're writing the sequel. You're writing the 2.0 of all of these <laughs> things that you... You know, right. you learned grammar school when you were eight years old or nine years old. Yeah. And they're part well, and of so the many, vernacular. Yeah. So many people have now written their version 2.0 of Shakespeare, right? I mean, it's basically right. happening all the time. Yeah. Well, it's impossible huh. uh, to live outside of, of the shadow of that figure, especially if you're writing in English, uh, but even beyond sure. the, you know, the English language. Uh, Michael, what else you got going on? I know you've been, uh, are you working on some music right now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've been doing a couple of things. I've, I've, I was working, I, last time we talked, I was working on a, uh, a new song that was going to be part of a, a, um, a project to raise money for homeless people. I don't know if that's shelved or not, but we have all the demos out there. At some point we're going to vote on them and try to get them fully produced. Um, so that, that song will probably make it into my third album. Um, I have a couple other, about six other songs that are pretty close to ready for that. Um, and then I've been teaching, you know, the, the show got canceled. So we've been meeting with those students once a week just to sort of like check in with them, make sure they're okay. You know, one, uh, one and possibly two of them had the coronavirus. Oh dear. So, so we were exposed and I'm hoping that we're, <laughs> we're the 50% of people that were asymptomatic, which so you we mean, would have the antibodies, but you're not, I'm hoping, I mean, we spent hours together in the same rehearsal room and several people had it. Um, and is everybody so, okay? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, had to go to the hospital, had, you know, to go into treatment, but nobody was intubated or anything horrible like that. Just, you know, right. terrible headaches and lethargy and, and that stuff. Yikes. Um, so anyway, we're meeting with them and then, and then I'm teaching a voiceover class, um, that, uh, yesterday, actually we had the midterm for that, which was really gratifying. It was the highlight of my week because about four of the kids just did awesome commercial demos all that, right better than i could have done cool you know, the, yeah <laughs> the student well, yeah, becomes yeah. the master i yeah, was yeah, i was yeah. very happy with him you sound really good on the get this podcast at get this podcast.com you sound outstanding <laughs> okay <laughs> and the bloom uh, impersonation is epic 
Yes, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a trick because clearly that's the phrase to get your get yourself into the bloom. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Impersonation. Well, my my friend uh, Alex Lippard, who's a, a wonderful playwright too, and uh, and director, took took the class with me one semester. I think he was in it just the second semester, but Bloom was teaching um, King Lear, and there's a character in there, uh, uh, Edgar, not Edmund. Edmund's the you know the the evil one, um, but Edgar uh, dresses up as Tom um, and leads Gloucester around. Um, and and bring anyway he leads them sort of through the the blasted heath and all that stuff. Well, Tom was some sort of Shakespeare thought that it was based on some kind of ancient English um, kind of beggar character, Bloom, some sort of archetype. Bloom did, Bloom did, or Shakespeare? Did, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had some kind of ur text of this of this poor mad Tom um, poem that he had memorized. And his eyes kind of rolled. Like, yeah, it's just based on poor man, poor man Tom, the beggar man, sleeping, sleeping in the in the gutter, sleeping and looking at the stars, rambling through the woods. And he just went on and on for like <laughs> ten minutes, and then he kept it the reprise. Poor man Tom, beggar man, poor man. <laughs> Alex and I would entertain each other for years with our poor man Tom <laughs> bloom interpretations. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and, like, and he would almost go into these <laughs> trances. Yes, his yeah. eyes would kind of roll heavenward and he would begin to just, yes, and his way of reciting would be like this. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is noble in mind, as other things, and yes, outrageous fortune, take arms against the sea of troubles by opposing in them. <laughs> <laughs> he has that accent, uh. which is quite uh, close to the kind of mid-century, mid-Atlantic the yeah, stuff that like, the Hitchcock middle. movies, <laughs> right? And you're like, right. where? Why do you sound like you're not from America or yeah. England? Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're from the middle of the ocean there somewhere, and 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 you're supposed to be in San Francisco. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> what is this? From the Azores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Nobody ever spoke like this ever. <laughs> yeah, we had to learn that in uh, in graduate school. They called it IPA. Uh, the, well, you'd learn the IPA in order to learn the the standard America, um, which, mm. of course, was like nothing that ever existed or anybody right. ever authentically spoke, unless somebody had taken an elocution class in the you know, early 20th century. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kind of wild. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Was he uh, – did he have any influences sort of contemporary? Was Would he, would he, would he talk about authors, uh, you know, from the 20th yeah, century? Well, Sure. I mean, he loved Toni Morrison. Uh, he loved mm. just to throw up, you know, ones that kind of buck that thing of him being some bigoted, um, you know, uh, whatever. And he, and he also liked um, Ursula Le Guin. Mm. Like he was a huge oh, really? fan of left uh, left hand of darkness. I he just thought, read that recently that it is it is a masterpiece. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he actually references that in this book where he's talking about um the angels of Milton are kind of both they're they're sort of embody both sexes, similar mm -hmm. to what happens on that that planet, winter yeah. planet where they're yeah. um so you know, he had wide ranging interests. He but he he definitely had his opinions of what he thought was great and what he thought was trash. <laughs> um and he wasn't opposed to anything that was contemporary. I think he he really liked Tony Kushner. You know, he mm -hmm. thought he thought Angels in America was extraordinary and that had only come out a few years before I had class with him. Yeah, hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. And so these classes would take place. You've said around a table. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of what that hall was, but it was a really great uh, lecture. Well, it wasn't a lecture. There was a, a few lecture rooms in it, but then there was rooms that were, I don't know, kind of the size of this cabin, maybe 30 feet by 20 feet. They would have a, just a massive table in the middle of it. And then everybody would kind of sit around the edges of the table he would sit at the the head of the table to one side and then people would just kind of cram in around him. And then some people would be sitting in the windows and pulling up chairs, kind of a second row of chairs behind there. It was, it was crowded, but it was, it was, uh, it was fun. And then he would have to take a break to go to the bathroom somewhere halfway in between. And you'd bump him into him in the bathroom and <laughs> make it back, make it back to class. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Did he make everyone comfortable? Uh, what was kind of day one? Like, did he just come on really strong? Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it, it was just, it, it was like the the um, imitation that I'm doing is is just how he he was. I mean, I could just sort of 
the way he writes is the way he would speak, you know. So <laughs> I could just read to you from him. Yeah. He, it would not be unlike to, to sort of walk into the class and hear him say, Hello, my darlings. Thank you for coming here. Please try to find room. I don't want to kick anyone out. The dominant element in Western religious traditions, particularly in Europe and the Middle East, less so in America, tends to be institutional, historical, dogmatic in its orientation. It's just true for Judaism. You know, we just, <laughs> he was writing, he was writing his next book in class. Right? Yeah, he probably right. would go home and then, you know, transcribe what he remembered of what he'd spoken. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Hmm. Did and any- then at a certain point, he would kind of, he would stop talking for a little bit, open up for discussion, and then he would either agree with you or, or shut you down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was anyone ever really uh, combative with him? Did, it, did he freak oh, anyone yeah. out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He freaks the people out. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. People, people, like I said, people who, uh, I don't know how to define the type, but people that just, you know, were edging, you know, rearing for a fight thought, you know, and had a pretty big ego, healthy ego would want to take him on. And he would just eviscerate them. <laughs> it was, it was interesting, you know, and he just, you know, he'd be like, Oh, you're one of them. I see. Well, I will fight you to the death. <laughs> He, would he say that? Or oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love you it. Bring me to my grave, defending the, the defending the inviolability of the self. <laughs> I, there never was and never will be a book that was written by social forces. If anyone can define what those actually are. <laughs> I love wow! It. Perfect. Uh, yeah, Shakespeare huh. and social forces. Uh, wonderful. Well, he. this is a man who picked a position and stuck to yeah. it. I mean, and I had taken other classes in the English department. You know, Brad, similar to what you're saying, and the essays that would be suggested is, you know, trace the imagery of, uh, you know, the color purple throughout the works right. of Emily Dickinson or talk about, you know, glove making in Shakespeare and how his father being a glove maker influenced him. And it's like, you know, you work on that essay for a month and a half and you're like bored to death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not, so I don't huge questions, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't have anything to do with, there's a lineage between you picking up some certain book at some point in your life as a young person and you ending up in that class. And it's not yeah. to write about the history of glove making. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and that's yeah. what he, you know, he talks about his childhood of, of, you know, loving, finding these poets, finding yeah. these, these works of literature and them just like lighting him on fire, like giving right. him chills, opening up possibilities of, of the universe being much, much larger than, you know, his little Brooklyn tenement uh, right. apartment that he was growing up in. And I think that that's, yeah, that's what you go into theater for English or, you know, some people do. Yeah. But yeah, the other stuff, a lot of the other classes that I took there were not a they couldn't hold a, a flame to his to his class. Sure. Yeah. What do you think the arch feature of, of it was? His passion for the the material, his knowledge of it, the whole thing. Yeah, the whole the whole kit and caboodle, and his yeah his his love of it, and his his elevating um, these authors and these characters. The, the, I mean the the audacity of the, that idea that these characters are as real or maybe realer than most people you'll ever meet because you can keep coming back to them and you can keep going deeper with them and you can, they, they teach you more and more and more as you continue to read them. And that's true when you, you know, when you perform a play and you're on your 50th or 60th performance, it doesn't, for me at least with good plays like a Shakespeare play, it doesn't get dull. It actually gets deeper and more interesting the more times you do it. Um, so yeah, that it was super exciting, you know, did yeah, Bloom have any opinions on the ascendance of, I guess, the comic book genre? That was kind of early days <laughs> for that, but I really wonder what he made of Batman as an archetype or whatnot. Did he have any? Ever, did that ever come up? You know, I don't think so. I, I don't remember him. I don't think that he would go that far. I, I think the furthest he would go afield from, you know, typical things he would study in, in literature and English was was his interest in fantasy, um, mm. like with the Ursula Le Guin and stuff like that. But I don't think he I don't think he went into the uh, comic book world that much. But I could yeah. be wrong. I haven't uh, read yeah. everything that's well, written. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Very cool. Well, we're coming here to the end. Uh, Brad, do you have any any more questions for Michael as we uh, talk about Harold Bloom here? 
not in particular, but that was fascinating stuff. And it's cool to get uh, get sort of my some of my intuitions about him confirmed and get some of these stories about him. It's really cool. I mean, he's a he's a guy that I hope culturally we don't forget, you know, and I hope his sort of legend just yeah. grows, honestly, because he kind of does. He, I think he deserves it. So and this has inspired me to go back and, and read um, not only some Shakespeare, uh, but but uh, maybe pick up a book or two of Bloom's as well. Yeah, this one, if you're interested in Gnosticism, this I one, Omens, yeah, Omens yeah. of Millennium, are, is, it's really interesting. I'm just kind of slowly rereading it this week, and it's it's cool. Yeah, I'm going to pick that up. Well, whenever I can get out of the house, I'll pick that up. <laughs> what's, the, oh my God. what's the thrust of Omens of Millennium, briefly? Well, he's, I think, inspired by, like you said, back in the late 90s, Millennium was approaching, and there was... A lot of people, a lot of sort of popular culture interest in angels and stuff like that. And he wanted to trace the origins of that to, um, well, what he traced it to was Zoroastrianism. Uh, um, uh-huh. That the Zoroaster uh, was this kind of prophet who predicted uh, a, an imminent apocalypse. And then it didn't happen, as they often don't. Um, <laughs> so then it became this, this huge, um, uh, worldview where there's a, a you know a, a god that will eventually prevail and uh, a kind of Satan figure, and then all of these angels in between, and that there hadn't been angels in Jewish, um, in Jewish uh, scholarly writing or Jew, you know in the in the Bible before um, the the episode in Babylon where the Jews are are uh, enslaved in Babylon, and that that Zoroastrianism kind of found its way into Judaism and then found its way into Christianity, found its way into Islam. And then pops up again with Swedenborg and Blake and then, you know, more contemporary. Now it's popping up in in literature and popular culture all the time in the 90s. And so he was looking at that and and what is the angel figure and the astral body and how does that relate to Gnosis? And um, he's just playing around with all these ideas. Mm. What a fascinating figure. (laughs) Well... Lot to chew on here. He he claimed that he had had, uh, you know, he doesn't go into details of his own experience, but I he hints at that he had had this kind of near death. I know he had nearly died of a bleeding ulcer right before I'd had class with him, so that was on his mind. And also this kind of religious experience led to the the anxiety of influence. I think he he felt that he'd had some kind of contact with the semi divine figure, sure, but yeah, he, he doesn't go into any detail about it, but that's kind of hinted at through the book. Yeah, it seems like he might have had too much taste, the good taste, to really, <laughs> yeah, talk about it. That's fascinating. A word is dead when it is said. Yeah, I think that was yeah. one of his uh, things that once once you find the words to describe something, it's already dead in your heart. So oof. gracious. So I think yeah. So I think you know in the same way that the fall that creation itself is the fall the. Um, making explicit these inchoate ideas mm-hmm. also kind of kills them. So Great. I think yeah. he, he, he kind of keeps everything at arm's length, but goes through the whole. Interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. Such a joy <laughs> to, uh, to hear these stories, Michael, where can people find you online? So if you want to see cool, um, just whatever pictures and I stuff like that, go to Instagram. It's back in town, B A K K E N T O W N, uh, on Instagram. And then uh, I have a website if you just want to check me out, www.michaelbackinson.com. And then I'm on Twitter, same thing, at Michael Backinson. But I don't, I don't do that much on Twitter. I kind of just... Save yourself. Stay away. Yeah. Save yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Brad, where can people find you? Uh, pretty much everything is uh, Twitter, Brad Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y. What a joy and a gift. Yeah. And thanks for, for sharing your experience. Michael, let's do this again sometime soon. Brad, we're, you know, we always have something to talk about. Maybe we do another episode like this where we bat around uh, another another author, another figure That'd who we, we admire. Yeah. I think this is a really cool little uh, little group here. So just really yeah, grateful, you guys. Yeah. And you know where to yeah. find the show. It's at getthispodcast.com. I'm Kevin Couchman, and we'll talk to you later. Yeah. Take care. Peace. Thanks, fellas. <laughs>
Thank you.